Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, uh, first to Genesis chapter 32, uh, a passage Isaac referenced in Sunday school this morning as if we had planned it. Uh, and then if you're able to put a finger in uh, Luke 13, that will be our main passage uh, this morning. But, but first, a little um, well-known passage in Genesis 32. We're just going to read verses 22 through 28. If you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, that's page 27. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Beloved saints, this is our God's word to us this morning. Let us uh, listen to it with rapt attention uh, and reverence. The same night he arose, that's Jacob, and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok, and he turned them, sorry, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. And he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God as as with men and have prevailed. And now turn with me, if you will, to uh, Luke chapter 13. We're going to read verses 22 through 30. Uh, Again, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 873. Uh, Luke is the third book of the New Testament. If you hit John, you've gone too far. Again, this is God's word. He, that is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house had risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, some are are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. I sense the reading of, of God's word. Let us ask his blessing uh, on our time in it this morning. Our gracious God, you know our fickle hearts. You know that we fear the truth as much as we desire it. 
that we're as likely to run from it as we are to it, that we can suppress your glorious truth without a thought, second thought. And so our confidence as we draw near to your word is that you are greater than our fears, that you are not bound by our sin, and that your word gives freedom to those in bondage. So may we not just believe these things, but may we witness them as you open your word to us now, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this might come as a shock, but we like to be first. And we, we do from our earliest days. You tell a bunch of kids to line up and watch them start pushing each other to be the first in line, the front one. Pick teams for a game, and everyone wants to be the first one picked. Year-end ceremonies, everybody wants to hear their name mentioned for being the best at something. Everybody wants recognition. Put another way, no one strives to be last, to be the last one picked for the team, to be ignored, forgotten, or neglected. And no one is exempt from this desire. Everyone wants to be recognized and respected for what they do, to be thought of as good at what they do. Everyone wants to excel. Who wouldn't want to be exceptional, to, to get ahead? And yet Jesus has a way of turning everything upside down. In our passage, he tells us, that the first will be last and the last will be first. And he's not saying that you should strive to do poorly and that excellence should repulse you. That's not what he's saying. No, he's getting at something much deeper. He's getting at the heart and that desire for prominence, for recognition, to be special, and more importantly, for everyone to know it. Because he's dealing with pride and the desire to serve self above others. That's what he's addressing in our passage. And so he warns us not to strive as the world strives, to to knock ourselves out for things that cannot last. Instead, he tells you that you should strive after what cannot perish or pass away. And yet to do so, you have to play by a completely different set of rules, by his. And so what we're going to see in our passage this morning is really something as simple as this. Those who will be in heaven are those who cling to Jesus above all else. Those who will be in heaven are those who cling to Jesus above all else. When you, when you, when you cut away all, all the the assumptions, all the trappings, and everything else, it really comes down to this. And that's what I I hope to show you uh, from this this rich little section of Scripture this morning. Questions often appear more simple than they are. Uh, For example, verse 23 appears to be straightforward. Will those who are saved, will those be in heaven, be few? It, it, 
It seems to be a simple question. I'm sure you have wondered that. I know I have. Uh, Will more people find their way into heaven than not? Or will it be the other way around? Will they be few? It's a natural curiosity. And what's really interesting is that Jesus appears to give two contradictory answers in this passage. In verse 24, he says that the way is narrow, that many will seek to enter it and yet fail. He's stating emphatically that there are many who expect to be in heaven, whom we might expect to be in heaven, that won't be there. So in one way, in one sense, there will be fewer in heaven than expected. But look down at verses 28 and 29. On the last day, many who thought they were sure to enter will look, and they will see the saints of old, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets entering into heaven, and it will be a painful reality, leading them to weep and, and to wail and to gnash their teeth. And then it gets worse, because in verse 29 he says, people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west, and they will recline and feast in God's kingdom. Now that might not sound shocking to us, but it would have been scandalous to his hearers that day. Because he's speaking to Jews in Israel, many of whom are are religious leaders. They've garnered the admiration and the respect of the people. And Jesus is telling them that many of them will be shocked on the last day to find out that they are not welcomed into heaven. And then they will watch people from all over the world, that is, Gentiles, enter instead. So on the one hand, there will be fewer people than they expect But on the other hand, there will be more than they expect. What Jesus is saying is that there will be people that we expect to be in heaven that never make it, and there will be people that we don't expect who are there. Expect the unexpected is basically what Jesus is saying. And that doesn't mean to say that that rules are constantly changing. It's you today, it's you tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. It's not saying that God hasn't revealed the standards. What it means is that no matter how clear God is, we struggle to hear him, to believe him, and to really see the world as he sees it. One of the hardest things to do is to set our assumptions aside and to learn to think God's thoughts after him. So what are our assumptions? What are the things we tend to believe? Since it's just us here today, we can be honest. Our assumptions always tend to be that we are on the inside. That surely we are the kind of people that God wants around. That we'll make the cut will not be left out in the cold. 
Look at how Jesus says that those who are outside will respond in verse 26. But, but we, we ate and we drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. They're basing their, their confidence, their hope, on proximity. We ate near you. You taught near us. We've been around each other. We, we know each other. Aren't, aren't we friends? But you know what's strikingly absent from their defense? Things like love, loyalty, worship, submission, repentance, humility. These people are like those long-lost relatives and friends who come out of the woodwork when someone wins the lottery. We went to third grade together. Can you help me finance a car? Remember we played football together? Can you help a brother out? Cousin! There's nothing like family at a time like this, now that you're rich. Attending lectures, sharing meals, being near Jesus is is not what gets you into heaven. And I think we all know what this sounds like today. I've gone to church since I was born. I've been baptized. Or I've memorized every question and answer in the catechism. Or maybe it's simply that you're a rule keeper. You've you've done what was expected of you. You, You've crossed your T's. You've dotted your I's. And you feel like something is owed to you for the time put in. And so you say something like, I showed up. I did what was asked of me. I'm not some outsider. I know people. I know the lingo, the customs, the expectations. I'm an insider. Surely there is a place for me at the table. We find God's response to those who think this way in verses 25 and 27. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Verse 25. You can't help but hear echoes of the parable we heard in chapter 12 uh, of the servants who are awaiting their master to come home. There, it's the master who is outside knocking on the door and the servants who were told to be ready for his return. Now, now here things are reversed. The master is inside, and the servants are outside knocking and saying, Master, let us in. And here he, he's talking about heaven. A day will come when the master will shut the door and admit no more. And when that happens, people will suddenly get very serious. As we've been seeing in the last few passages, everyone always seems to think there's more time. Everyone thinks they're okay, that they're on the inside. But a day will come when the door is closed and no more will be admitted. And it will be too late to get serious. And though they bang on the door and beg for entrance, the final voice of justice will come from within I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
Now, when the all-knowing God says, uh, I don't know where, you're coming, where you come from, he's not saying, I, I didn't know you existed. That he's simply unaware or, or something like that. He's, he's not saying he doesn't know about them, but that he doesn't know them. It's a relational statement. Just because they've been around each other doesn't mean they are friends. And it's only his friends whom he allows into heaven. So what's the solution? That's the question, isn't it? If our problem is that that we come to the discussion with false assumptions, and if the solution is to listen to God's answer and to think his thoughts after him, what's the corrective voice that he is speaking to us this morning? Well, we find it in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, perhaps you're like me, and at first you think of strive as a synonym for something like seek, or desire after, or even try. Seek to enter through the narrow door. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, something like that. But strive is actually a much more uh, physical, visceral term. It means to agonize over something. It means uh, it could just as easily be translated uh, to struggle, to fight, fight the good fight, same word, to wrestle, something like that. And so we ask, wrestle with whom? Struggle with whom? Are we right back where we started? Is God saying, the door's narrow, Have at it. See who can get through it first. Push each other out of the way. (laughs) Let's get a good fight going. Is Jesus saying that there are only so many seats in heaven and that we just need to fight it out for those few seats? Is he inciting a battle royale for a place in heaven? No, not at all. I think we find the answer in that list of names we find in verse 28. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because one of those is known for a famous wrestling match. Jacob. You want to talk about insiders? Jacob is the ultimate insider. His father and grandfather were the the recipients of the greatest promises God had ever made that their house would be blessed and their descendants after them. If there was ever a person who could claim to be an insider, it's Jacob. He's sitting there at a get-together. Hey, ever heard of Abraham, Isaac? My dad and grandpa. You call him Father Abraham, I call him Grandpa. But it wasn't enough. Because Jacob's early years were not categorized, characterized by friendship with God. Jacob thought only of himself. He sought after only his own interests. And he wasn't afraid to lie a little, cheat a little, or hurt others to get his way. 
really the only thing about Jacob's situation that wasn't to his benefit was, was that he was the second born and inheritance typically went to the eldest. His brother Esau was due to inherit everything. But the ever-resourceful Jacob was never one to miss an opportunity. And so when Esau came in one day after a day of hunting, famished with hunger, Jacob didn't skip a beat. And he offered his brother some stew in exchange for his birthright. Jacob sought blessing at Esau's expense. He sought it through selfish, uh, for, through self-service and, and through deceit. In other words, he tried to bully his way into heaven, cheat his way into heaven, lie his way into heaven. And yet it benefited him nothing. God was not about to bless Jacob with heaven because he tricked his impulsive older brother. And so for the next two decades, actually a little bit more, Jacob was in hiding, really, running for his life. But eventually, God met up with Jacob while he sat alone, scared, awaiting his reunion with his older and stronger uh, brother, Esau. And that night, God appeared to Jacob as a man, and the two wrestled, and wrestled, and wrestled, all night. And as the sun started to rise, God crippled Jacob and told him to let go. I want you to imagine being in that situation. Your brother is coming, and he might pull a cane to your able. You haven't slept a wink. You're exhausted. And now you're crippled and in excruciating pain. And God says, okay, let go. What would you do? For the first time in his life, everything was clear. He wasn't going to trick God into blessing him. It wasn't something that could be bought or stolen. He couldn't trade on his grandfather's or his father's good names. He had to face God one-on-one and deal with him face-to-face. And God was saying, okay, call it quits, why don't you? Just let go and leave. And suddenly, Jacob's enormous wealth that he had gathered over the last 20 years meant nothing. Suddenly, his ability to manipulate others was worthless. Suddenly, his his brother was the last thing on his mind, and all that mattered was God. And now that Jacob had him, he was not going to let him go. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. I'm clinging to you. It's as if Jacob is finally crying out, kill me, take away all that I have, hand me over to my brother, do whatever you will, but I'm not letting go of you. And you remember what God did? (laughs) 
he gave Jacob a new name. Jacob's name, and you've got to wonder about Isaac and Rebekah at this point. Uh, Jacob means basically something like deceiver, liar, cheat. <laughs> Is our son liar? Not very flattering. But at that moment, God said, it's time for a new name. From that day forward, he was known as Israel, which means he strives with God. God blessed Jacob, and, and he became the father of 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel coming from those sons. He blessed the younger brother, the last born, and made him the first because he was willing to surrender all in order that he might cling to God. Because that's what matters to God. That's how his kingdom works. In fact, if Jacob had been listening better, he would have known this would be the case because when he was still in the womb, God told his mother that the older would serve the younger. That God would not bow to cultural expectations that the last would be the first and the first would be the last in this family. God doesn't care how good-looking you are, how much money you have, where you fall in the birth order, how many trophies you have on the shelf, or how much money you have in the bank. None of that amounts to anything. Those who surrender all, those who willingly acknowledge that they have nothing, those who are willing to put others before themselves, those who are willing to stop advocating for themselves, find that God takes up their case. And he becomes their advocate. It's just how he works. It's who he is. Did you notice how our passage began? Jesus was journeying through towns and villages, making his way toward Jerusalem. Why was he headed to Jerusalem? He was headed there to be tried on false charges, convicted with false witnesses, and then murdered. He told his disciples repeatedly that that's why he was headed to Jerusalem. Nothing that took place when he got there caught him by surprise. So why? Why would the firstborn son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the one whose name is greater than all other names, that every knee must bow and tongue confess that he is Lord, the one who is above all others, why would he lower himself below all others and become the least? He did so in order to show us mercy and grace. He did so because it was the only way to offer salvation to sinners by dying in our place and, and suffering what we deserved. The only way for anyone to be saved was for Jesus, the first among all, to become the very last, the greatest servant the world has ever known. That's how his kingdom works. That's who he is. How could he call us to anything else. 
How could he who surrendered all rights and privileges not call us to do the same? How could he who became the greatest servant not call us to serve as well? How could he provide salvation through weakness and not call us to salvation through weakness? Isn't that what the Lord's Supper reminds us of? Every week, that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, that he did not demand to be first in line, but committed himself and contented himself to put others first. That he is the greatest because he became the least. And so the Lord's Supper reminds you of the only way into heaven. It's not by demanding honor and recognition. Not by being better at sports or your job or even theology. But it's by clinging to Jesus and refusing to let go. Because those who do find themselves blessed for all eternity. What a great comfort. What a great promise. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, why would he, who is first among all others, choose to become last, servant of all, Your love and your grace, they confound us and they amaze us. And yet we long for these things to shape us, to change us, so that we might learn to serve others before ourselves, to place our hope not in being the best, the smartest, or the most crafty, but in simply clinging to Jesus and striving with you like Jacob did. Teach us to strive, to be last, knowing that those who do will not be abandoned, will not be forgotten, but will be welcomed into your kingdom, that the last will be first. Amen.